Okay, well, let's go ahead and we'll pause for prayer. Let's see, Ron, would you mind leading us in prayer tonight? Amen. Okay, we're on page 45. And we'll be looking at the fourth disputation. This is point E, capital letter E. The Lord's coming to judge the wicked and to purify his people. Notice, we lost sight of this because we spent three weeks on Malachi 2, 10 to 16. But remember the pattern in the book. You'll have an assertion. Then you'll have the people's objections. And then God's going to respond to them. Well, we see that pattern again here. In 217a, we have an assertion. 17b, an objection. And then an explanation with an expansion. So let's look at the actual text. And we'll walk through this. Notice this in 217. Notice this assertion. Malachi is representing the Lord. You have wearied the Lord with your words. And then notice Israel's objection. How have we wearied him, you ask? And then he's going to give an answer here. Notice he says, by saying... All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? Now, if you'll notice on page 46, with number three, the Lord's response, and I have A, the Lord's example, I itemize. In fact, it's easy. You can see it right in your Bible. There's, there's two things that he's going to develop here. Notice, they were saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased. That's what Israel's maintaining. Or, where is the God of justice? So, their objections here really come in the area of two different types of things, although they're interrelated. But the prophet itemizes them, and that's the difference. Well, let's look how God expands on this with a prophecy. Notice with verse 1 to 2b, we have the Lord will come in judgment. I will send my messenger. So notice, I as God, I will send my messenger. Now, more than likely, as I spell it in my notes, this messenger is, is Elijah. Now, I should say, John the Baptist could have fulfilled it. But since John was rejected and Jesus is rejected, see, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but they rejected. So this is a future Elijah. Uh, and I take it it's in the last part of the tribulation, and we see this itemized in Revelation. So he's looking to that. Notice further, God's going to send Elijah who will prepare the way before me. Now notice, John the Baptist did that. Now Elijah's going to do it again at the end of the tribulation. But remember, the people rejected it. (coughs) So he's looking ahead. Then suddenly the Lord you you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Well, let's stop there. I, I developed this on page 47. Notice, I show the parallels between the last part of verse 2. Come on in, Ken. I can't say the seat's hot, <laughs> but I'm sure you'll warm it up. Yeah, that I will. We're on page 47. Thank you. So notice... What I've done here, I've hyphenated the words. Now, in Hebrew, a lot of these hyphenated words, they're one word. Like with the verb, you have the subject, when it's a personal pronoun, built into the verb. If it has 
a direct object that's a pronoun, that's built right into the verb. Also, they'll put their conjunctions, like then suddenly. That's attached immediately to the adverb suddenly. So what I've done is I've tried to hyphenate it so that in a literal way it reflects something of the Hebrew text. So notice we have then suddenly, he will come. Notice I have that in bold print. But if you'll notice, I've also have in the last part of the verse, he comes in bold print. It's the same verb. So notice the first line we have, then suddenly he will come to his temple. Notice the Lord is in italics, whom you are seeking. And I underline the participle there. But notice the parallels here. And the messenger of the covenant. Notice that's italics, just like the Lord was. They're referring to the one and the same, the Lord. Then it says, in whom you delight. Notice the light is underlined, just like our seeking. They're seeking someone they will delight in. And then he comes, says the Lord Almighty. Well, you might think it's odd to have the messenger of the Lord or of the covenant. But often he's referred to as the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. This is one and the same. It's the second member of the Trinity. That's the only member of the Godhead that makes a visible appearance. And so why does he call him the messenger of the covenant? Well, I've pointed out before, uh, the prophets sometimes took on the role as the enforcer of the covenant. And what God's saying here is that he's the enforcer of the covenant. So he's called the messenger of the covenant. That is the enforcer of the covenant. He's the one who will judge and he's the one who will reward. So I did that. I think it more clearly lays out what the text is, but I think you can still see it in your English Bibles. So notice then, how could the Lord be referred to as the messenger covenant? Well, as I mentioned, this is a parallel with the main, with the messenger or angel of the Lord, or as I say here, Yahweh. So this is like other passages in the Old Testament where we have the angel of the Lord. And so he's going to come again, and he's going to enforce the covenant. That is, he's going to be judge, and he will also be the rewarder. But nevertheless, it's in the second member of the Trinity's can I say hand, so to speak? Since he does have a bodily form. So, anyway, that's what that's referring to. Now, notice going on to verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Now, notice it goes on to say here, or he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Notice, I developed this a bit more in my notes. Uh, here, the Lord's judgment in verse 2 is like a refiner's fire and the launderer's soap. That is, it's going to remove what's unclean. That's the point. So, the coming judgment will purify his people. In verse 3, notice he continues on. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by. So notice in verse 3, this is where he's the rewarder. So he's taking into account those who were reprobate, and those who are regenerate. That's the point. So he's got them both worked in. But notice, it's going to be none other than the second member of the Trinity who's executing the judgment. So this will be good news for God's elect from Israel. It'll be bad news for the reprobate. And remember, with the Israelites, 
the mass of them were reprobate. Those who are believers are often called the remnant. Uh, Sometimes in the Old Testament, they're referred to as those who please God or God fears. Well, in the main, those are the remnant. And, uh, you know, we need to be thankful that there was only a remnant because if that was not the case, we would not be here. I mean, that's just the bottom line. (laughs) If they were so good and true and obedient, there would be no need for the church age. (laughs) So I thank God for their disobedience in that sense. Although I don't relish people being judged, but I think for our sake, it was blessed. So some of the seed form of this goes right back to here. Well, notice then in verse 5, and you can see this on page 48. Notice I'm just walking through the text with you, but I have it in my notes. The Lord will demonstrate his justice when he comes in judgment. Notice how Malachi here directs his attention to answering the charges that the Lord's method of operation approves of injustice. Look what the text says. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers. And by the way, he's just highlighting three categories. These are representative. It's the disobedient. Against those who defraud laborers of their wages who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So notice, he will judge them. Now, by the way, if you'll notice with Israel, they're much more concerned about social issues. We need, by the way, we should not be opposed to social justice. I hope we're not so radically dispensational, we cannot appreciate a little bit of social justice. I'm not that much of a dispensationalist to say that. And I am a dispensationalist. How do you know that? I teach at a dispensational school. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) No, I'm a dispensationalist. (laughs) Reminds me of a story. Early on when I first started teaching at Detroit, I was still, I think I was about 33, 34 it's my first few years. Still had a full head of hair. It was dark, and that's probably losing a little bit, but it looked, still looked pretty good. Well, we had this student in Hebrew class. Dave Dorn and Hal Selstead were in this Hebrew class. I had them both for Hebrew. Anything you want to know, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and since Hal's on staff here now, I've got some juicy things about Hal. <laughs> But he'll tell you, we had a student in this class. He was from Korea. He was a pastor. One time he slipped up and he started praying in English and then switched to Korean. So the guys were joking he was speaking in tongues. And one other time something came up about dispensationalism. and They said to him, his name was Jin Choi. He says, Oh, and it was about Baptists, not dispensational. So I'm sorry, it was Baptist. And they said uh, to Jin Choi, he, he did not have a Baptist church. And I can't remember whether it was Selstead or Dorn said, are you a Baptist? And he says, I go to school here. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Well, that's why when I say I teach at a dispensationalist school, what does that mean? (laughs) Except I am a dispensationalist. (laughs) Could you explain that a little bit, though? Because it seems like we see a little bit of a rise of social issues. Mm -hmm. So the Israelites were more concerned about... Right. It was part of of their guess. See, the church, or I can say the religion and the state, state, they were combined. Right. That's the theocracy. Right. We're, we're separate today. Right. That's why I don't think we see it quite as much. But I do think we see more concerns about it today right. than what I've seen, even among dispensationalists. 
Well, I think that's because our society's falling apart. And we are supposed to be salt and light. And I know at our church, uh, Tracy Fressel, one of the assistant pastors, he's on city council. And we've had other guys from the church who are police officers. So I think there's a place we need to be a little bit more socially involved. Uh, I guess what I hear to, hear to is pretty well represented by my son, Bob. He is concerned about that stuff. And he's got some real horror stories. But my son cannot make the story sound as good as when Eric Menor tells it. Eric has just got a lot of... Well, he's floated with a lot extra, evangelistically speaking. <laughs> so he can embellish things real well. My son's not quite as good at embellishing things. In fact, he's, he's not very good at it at all. He's more of the facts guy. Eric makes it interesting. <laughs> but I think the fact that we do see more people from our types of churches being involved in society... I do think we we do recognize society is falling down around us. And we have a concern, in our case, for our children and our grandchildren. And uh, that weighs more heavily on me because I wonder about the world they're going to be raised in. It doesn't look good. So, you know, I don't think... You all checked. Now, I don't think the Republican Party's the end all. They've got a lot of wickedness there, too. But I think we are voting on the lesser two evils. And generally, at least they have a better moral platform. I can honestly say, my wife and I, we basically, when we got married, we were, on, we were considered in poverty. My youngest son was born through the welfare system in Chattanooga, Tennessee. But I never voted because somebody promised me more stuff. It was always about the moral agenda. It just concerns me that we have people who, I mean, they, they seem like they're solid Christians. I mean, you got them here, we got them at inner city. And yet they vote Democrat. For the life of me, I cannot harmonize that with my system of beliefs. It's, I mean, we're we're talking about abortions, now homosexual unions, uh, and it's just a matter of time until we have polygamy. I mean, once you throw off the moral foundation, and we have, I mean, I don't think there's hope. I think it's just a matter of time. In the news, I think there were, wasn't there three women that married? Yes. Yeah, that would just happen. It just happened. Where, where did they land? I don't remember where it was, but yeah. the ramifications of that is going to then extend yeah. over to the yeah. heterosexual. Yeah. Three it's, women just married? Yeah. Three, three women were, were legally married. I don't remember what state it was, but there were three of them that, that yeah. joined in the holy matrimony. So that's polygamy, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's also polygamy. I mean, yeah. it's wrong because it's queer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're from the same age group. Yeah. Well, can you too? Uh, yeah, we call them faggots and things like that. Yep, yep. I knew some who got decked. I never decked one, but. I had a friend who decked one pretty good. <laughs> and there's, the police did not do anything about it. Now, I don't think it's right for us to be hitting on them or anything like that. But we certainly don't want to endorse their lifestyle or even hint at it. But you're going to see the broad group of evangelicals, they're already discussing the place of homosexuality in the church. So I think that's going to divide evangelicalism, which would be right. So anyway, but I do think, and I thank God for people.
people in our church who are more concerned about that. Uh, and I'm sure you all have the same thing here. Part of the problem is, is there's churches out there that not only condone it, but support it. With the right. That's right. They're very, very liberal. And, you know, I've read some of their, their websites. I don't want to grow seal. Oh. You know. oh, yeah, I've seen it too. Yeah, they, you know, they support a gay priest or and even some very liberal ends of the Presbyterian denomination. I don't. I'm not Catholic, but we were raised Presbyterian. That's our tradition. But my parents, they they would turn over in their graves, knowing this, as would my grandparents. So it's just sad. But the ramifications are right. They're big. <laughs> They're big. Wow. A lady said to me the other day, um, our children, they're not the way we taught them. She said, one of her children said to her, so what's wrong with being gay? But remember, um, maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was a real controversial over uh, books in the library. Mm-hmm. has two mommies. Oh, yeah, I remember. Right. These young people learned that there was nothing wrong with it. Sure. Even TV shows. Yeah. You can see TV shows in the early 90s. Sure. Or, uh, the two gay guys over yeah. there, the one gay yeah. guy, at least you only knew he was yeah. gay. But, you know, he was always in the. Uh, and it was fine. Yeah. It was fine. Yeah, oh, he's fine. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sure, yeah. Lord, a good Christmas song. Good expression. <laughs> it's been ruined. <laughs> but I think we see all this. And you know, I think I think our type of Christians need to be more active in these things. Now I think the church is probably going to be on the losing end. We had our lecture series by Peter Hubbard from Greenville. He wrote a book on homosexuality, the Christian homosexuality and the church and something else. Now, he's, he's seen a number of homosexuals converted in his church. But uh, he told us right up front, you know, we're probably going to lose our tax-exempt status. It's a matter of time. Because we're not giving in on it. Yeah, I, I, I honestly understood they were very aggressive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When I would think China, I mean, I think they'd let that go as long as you're a communist. Right. But you know who's, but you know who's opposed to it? It's Islam. Yeah. I mean. We, they do have their faults, but that, they are I right on that. Sad. That's sad. That's why they don't have a problem. He said, that's why they don't have a problem with it because it's okay on Thursday. That's why these guys are 50 years old and never been married before. Well, I'm military. This is unbelievable. Don't ask, don't tell. Right. 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 But that was a little extreme for me at the time. So it's, but that's the world we live in, and I do think it's time we woke up. So we have to do as much as we can to fight. 
so it's anyway but I do take consolation in the fact God's here focusing on Israel but he's got other passages that deal clearly with that in the New Testament uh, 1 Corinthians 6 uh, you know homosexuality is mentioned in Romans 1 in fact Paul says such were some of you so we do see that so our consolation is God will be an accurate judge and when he judges when it's his time it'll be swift he's letting people now store breath for the day of judgment and that's what's going on well I probably said got too socially involved (laughs) but I think it's high time we need to be involved. I do know that in my early years of dispensationalism, you know, I I was taught dispensationalism when I was in seminary for my MDF degree. And, you know, there's some things that I would not be like I was taught, but I am still a dispensationalist. I think there's a consistent distinction between Israel and the church. And that's how you can tell if somebody's a dispensationalist. But... In my early years, you just stayed out of society. And um, I think that really helped to grease the skids to where we are today. Christians should have been more actively involved. I'm glad Tracy Fressel is on our city council, quite frankly. Uh, You know, I'm thankful. My neighbor's son, Phil Dauberton, Jason Dauberton, he's a police officer in Allen Park. Jason's a godly man. I thank God for that. Uh, you have Wayne Albright, uh, John Mathis. So Allen Park has had some role, I would think, godly cops, which is good. Uh, but we need some real godly lawyers. <laughs> That's what we really need. So, But there are some out there. Okay, well, we need to move on to the fifth disputation. The Lord desires to bless his unfaithful people. Notice here, this is verses 6 to 12. And what we're probably most familiar with this is because it's dealing with tithes and offerings. Here, because Israel had constantly turned away from the Lord, they deserved to be destroyed. However, because of Yahweh's immutable character, Israel had not been eliminated as a nation. Uh, And I deal with Deuteronomy 31, how they will result, even though they've been exiled, eventually they will respond in repentance and submission to God. At that point, God would reverse the covenant curses and bestow on the nation the covenant blessings. But to receive these blessings, Israel was expected to fully obey the Lord. So this is where tithes and offerings come in. So if you notice here, there's going to be an assertion again. We see one assertion in 6 and 7a. That's followed up on with another in 8a. Then there's some objection in 7b and 8b, and then a response in 8c through 12. Let's look at the text. Notice the introduction. I, the Lord, do not change. Now I should pause there. That's referring to God's immutability. He does not change. Immutable is a good term to embrace. We need to educate younger Christians it's okay to use some of these bigger words. It may help us increase our desires to develop a greater vocabulary. But God's immutable. Now, notice here, the question is, or we could put it this way, because the Lord does not change, the descendants of Jacob are not destroyed. So if we put that because in there, I think we see where he's going here. 
He says, ever since the time of your ancestors, verse 7, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? See, they think they haven't turned away to start with. That sounds like a typical sinner. And then God says, yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? It's a dumb thing to say. In tithes and offerings. So I developed that on page 48, what we've just read. You can read the notes there. But let's get down to the response on page 49. The Lord's response to Israel's disobedience and giving. The Lord's response has two aspects. His affirmation in verse 8c through 9, and then his exhortation with the problem. Let's look at the affirmation. The specific evidence that is used against Israel is that they had failed to bring their tithes and offerings. Did you notice that? I mean, it's, it's just real short in tithes and offerings. We could put an exclamation point. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Well, God's pretty pointed. His prophet speaks up, and he tells the people, you're a bunch of thieves, kleptomaniacs. I think thieves works better. So we want to look a little bit at tithes and offerings. I think your church is probably like ours. I don't think I've ever heard Pastor Dorn preach a sermon on tithing. In fact, I've heard him give some messages where he gives why he's against it. Now, by the way, he always, his default mode is uh, we should give sacrificially. So it's not about giving up on giving. But, and I suspect, I think Pastor Ken's the same way. I mean, we did educate him. <laughs> we educated Pastor Dorn, come to think of it. <laughs> because he sure wasn't hearing that from Dr. Rice. <laughs> Remember? Well, Dr. Rice didn't preach on tithing either. He left that up to Gene Pound. That's right. Gene was the legalist. That's right. That is true. He was a Chuck Colson when it came to that. And he came in with the grace. But he still believed in the 10%. So he worked grace into it. So I never really had a problem with it because of the grace side. Although, Dr. Combs and I both, when Dr. Rice first met with us, he flew down to Chattanooga. We were both teaching at Tennessee Temple. His wife had to work, but Dr. Rice took Linda, myself, and Bill out to lunch. And we were up front with Dr. Rice. Things we had listened to some sermons where we did not agree because we felt he needs to know this before he hires us because we had some strong convictions on this. Uh, so we just laid it out. He believed in Dr. Teachout's dissertation. All good uses of wine are grape juice and all bad uses or wine. Well, this is so, it's a flawed dissertation. They don't even keep it in the stacks now at, at Dallas Seminary. They put it someplace where nobody can get a hold of it because he should not have got his, gotten his doctor's degree. He assumed his conclusions and then he wrote a dissertation. That's not what a dissertation's about. And he has one major problem at the end of it. In fact, really, he has a couple major problems. Why does Paul have all these commands against drunkenness? It doesn't make sense if, as Teachout argues, the primary drink is grape juice. And so he's extolling the virtues of grape juice, and he never deals, deals with this issue. And the other issue was is in the list of qualifications, I think it's either for the elders or for the deacons, they're not supposed to linger long at the wine goblet, uh, he argues that that's, that's grape juice. 
so, you know, this is in Combs' area in the New Testament. And he just lays it out there. So, now, by the way, we, we don't drink. So I want to make that clear. Uh, the Combses don't drink. We just didn't think that's a biblical position. I would, I would support abstinence, though. And I have some reasons for that. But they're not biblical. I have to go other routes. Because I do, I mean, my family, there's... Alcoholism is run in my family. So it's just a bad thing to drink. Uh, and also, I think, now I don't know, I think it's changing today, but it used to be that if you were seen with wine, you were considered living disobediently. Now, from what some of the younger guys at the seminary say, that's not the case anymore. Well, I'm still a teetotaler. I just don't, you know, I just don't jump on and say it's unbiblical. I just say there's other reasons. And that's the way I leave it. So I know it worked with our children because I did not want them to think something false. So we told Rice that, and he believed in it real strongly. And also we told him we did not believe in tithing. Uh, My wife's big question was, see, at Tennessee Temple, she had to wear dresses all the time. Her big question is, could I wear slacks? (laughs) I still remember to this day, she was getting down to the real theological (laughs) nitty-gritty. But when you think of it, not being able to wear slacks was really kind of a stupid thing. I remember Linda worked, and remember that gal you work with? She had to go up steps with a dress on, so she started wearing slacks. You, my memory's better than hers. But they could see up the stairs, and some of the salesmen would look up it. Well, she started wearing pants. To me, I think they're more modest in many ways. <laughs> so, anyway, it's... but. You know, she was convinced this was good and acceptable. <laughs> so we all agreed this was the right move. <laughs> and we we're also concerned about the Calvinism issue. So we laid our cards on the table. And we told them that at that point we were four and a half point Calvinist. I cannot say that any longer. So... I'm not trying to be divisive, but I am a card-carrying five-point Calvinist. So, and so is my wife, so I know it's right. And so is half our faculty. So, but because I think that the issue on limited atonement, you've got to do more theological reasoning. If it was explicit in the text, and I don't think it's explicit in the text, it's something I don't make an issue of. I'm glad for my fellow faculty members who are four and a half point Calvinist. Because this is an area where, you know, I think I've got strong texts. They think some other texts are strong. I think I have a real good theological answer, which they have not answered. But they think they got the text. I think I've got a few texts. So, it's a standoff, but we don't fight about it. I mean, I'm content with that. And I think that's the way it needs to be. So, just like in a church, I don't think you can demand everybody to be a five-point Calvinist at your church or a four-point Calvinist. You probably have people who believe you can lose your salvation. Inner city may have too. You know, we need to make sure we have the basic things right. But you don't want those guys on your staff, though. Because there has to be some level of agreement. So we let Dr. Rice know all those things, and he hired us. In fact, he made some jokes with us about it once we were here. Because I don't even think McCune believed in tithing. So it was one of those things. So I don't know that I need to spend much time on it, but I'm going to explain some things. Now, first, notice the word tithe. That's a word that means a tenth part. Uh, 
It seems like it's with Leviticus 27. Tithing became a compulsory contribution. Um, And so there's a number of ways the tithe can be viewed. And I itemized three of them in the lower paragraph. If you put it all together, it looks like you've got more than 10%. Well, that's because you got 10% used for this and perhaps 10% for this. And then in the third year, you might have it used for something else. So the first way is that this basically would mean that they're giving 23 and a third percent per year. By the way, that's a lot. That's a whole lot. Uh, Secondly, on page 50, this could also mean that the 10% given by the Israelites were divided into three different ways. A portion for the Levites, another portion for the sacred meal, and every third year another portion is used for the needing of the Levites. Well, that's possible. I followed the Jewish tradition, and that basically sees that there's two required tithes. One was for the Levites and the other for the sacred meal. Because when they would make their annual trek, or really should be a triannual trek to Jerusalem, they're going to have sacred meals. And so that's set up for that. So that's the Jewish view, and that's the view I lean to. But it all doesn't matter because I'm not under law. And then we have offerings. And that refers to portions set aside from a larger portion for God in his work. It looks like these things are used primarily for the priest and the the maintenance of the temple. Um, But whatever the offerings are, it looks like it's something that was compulsory. So I do understand that they would have the 10% and then the 10% used uh, for the sacred meals and for the temple and stuff like that. And then now, every third year, I think that was divided differently, but it still amounted to 20%. Well, the one thing I did want to stress, we are not under law, point three. I would understand this is an invalid principle for the New Testament believer. Although, until I came to Detroit, I've heard this preached all the time. The pastor I replaced, he always gave a sermonette every Sunday on tithing. It was funny. The offering shrank. I'm a kid when they call me. I'm 25. And I've studied this issue out when I was in seminary. And so they have the big question and answer session with the whole church. And some people answered, asked me that question. And I took them to a few New Testament texts. I said, I believe in sacrificial giving, but you don't find it used in the New Testament one time. So you'll never hear me preach a sermon on tithing. You know, our offerings increased. Now, when we had a project, we laid it before the people, and we asked them to give. But it's amazing how those offerings soared. Well, I think he was very legalistic about that every Sunday. Well, that's the type of background I'm from. (laughs) It was a GRBC church. (laughs) So, anyway, um, here... This relates to people who are under the Mosaic Covenant. We're not under it. Notice point B on page 51. The New Testament believer is not under the Mosaic Covenant. In the New Testament, Paul goes to great lengths to demonstrate that the New Testament believer is not under the Mosaic legal system. And that 1 Corinthians 9.20, we're going to look at that. So let's turn there. and We'll need it for the next point. This is a key text. First Corinthians nine twenty. 
to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Makes sense to me. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. Did you get that? That's very clear. Especially in the context where Paul says he will practice Jewish customs when he's among the Jews. If he's not, he doesn't. So that's a extremely strong verse. So we're not under that covenant. Point C, the New Testament believer is under the law of Christ. Look at verse 21. To those not having the law, I became one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. But notice, he says, I am under the law of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, a good rule of thumb is that that's referring to the New Testament epistles. Now, I think it's a little bit more than that myself. I would say the moral law that goes back, uh, that predates the Mosaic Covenant, in some cases, that could still be in effect today. Like the issues about marriage and divorce, I think those are trans-dispensational. Now, the New Testament does have material on it. So generally, I'm looking for it to be reiterated in the New Testament. But I can think of a few occasions where that may not be the case. So, But I think for people in our church, that's the easiest rule of thumb. If it is in the New Testament, I follow it. And there are a lot of commands in the New Testament. That's what we follow. That's the law of Christ. Now, I could go on more on that. I go through this in my Pentateuch class, and I do wax eloquent about it. Uh, I've got to get those guys out from under the law. <laughs> but they willingly come. Hopefully they come under the law of Christ. And I think in the main, our seminary students are right there. In the main. We've had a few who weren't who left, but we thank God when they left. So D... The New Testament epistles never command the believer to tithe. If you find me one verse, I will tithe. Now we have something about Melchizedek, tithe there, but we're never commanded to tithe. Not one place. Right. But see, Jesus is still under the law. In fact, he had to be. Exactly right. He had, he, see, Jesus was accruing righteousness with obedience. Correct. And that's what's imputed to us. Right. But I always say, if you can show me in the New Testament epistles, I'll do it. In fact, we have a verse here that's to the contrary. Look, I have it in my notes. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, 7. This is about seven lines up. Every man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. That is, there's no tithe. There's no command on tithing. For God loves a cheerful giver. So people are supposed to give what they've said in their heart. We don't do it reluctantly. If we are, that doesn't please Christ. We give because we want to give. So now we a lot, I a lot, I think I'm the one that's mainly doing it. (laughs) My wife's never objected to what we give. (laughs) I'll put it that way. (laughs) But you know, I take this seriously, and so I take it into consideration annually. So, um, I think 10% easy to figure, so I can see somebody using it that way, and I, I have no problem with that. But it does seem to me that 
There may be some times when you give too much and you can get audited. I've known some people have been audited who gave too much. So you've got to know how to work with the system. Uh, when I used to itemize, and I don't anymore just because life's changed, uh, there were many years I just put it at 10% because I was afraid of being audited. Well, I think we need to use wisdom in this regard. But Pastor Kent's not going to turn away if you want to give more than 10%. I know him too well. (laughs) Neither is Pastor Dorn at our church. (laughs) So I would say we're not under this. The Israelites were. Okay, then there's an exhortation and promise in verses 10 to 12. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now notice, the storehouse is the temple. That is for where they, the economy they were living under. We don't have a central sanctuary. The temple is so much different than the local church. I mean, it's a big difference. So, for some Baptist preachers and others to use this, it's, it's, it's nonsense. I don't know that I tell them that, though. I'd be more diplomatic. And by the way, I do have political skills. <laughs> so I've survived. And we're married almost 42 years, so I got great political skills. <laughs> My wife doesn't think so. <laughs> okay, then we have the last section, and I'll just mention this. The sixth disputation, the Lord's affirmation of justice by contrasting the fate of the righteous and the wicked, 3.13 to 4.3. Now, this picks up and expands on what we looked at in the fourth disputation. So it's the, it's the same in that regard. So you can, you can read that. So this is probably a good place to stop. Any questions? There's a concluding summary on page 53. And uh, you can look at that. Well, people, I'm glad we got this far. I didn't know if we were going to make it. I told Pastor Ken I'd teach a class on Malachi, and I think I could have gone completely through Malachi in one session. But he said, well, they're hour-long sessions. I said, I still think I could do it. But we'll throw Haggai in so we did but we made it through both I say hallelujah (laughs) use my best Pentecostal voice well anyway thanks for being part of the class I enjoyed it